Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Well, Lisa Abramowitz, French elections, now British elections, uh, conflict between Russia and the United States, uh, countries wanting to leave the European Union, uh, oil in the Middle East, Russia and Syria and the United States and Saudi Arabia. Let me give you the other list. Let's go all the way to Asia now. Other things we can worry about. Uh Problems on the Korean Peninsula, North and South Korea, and China, as well as Japan and the Asian trading bloc. I can't make sense of it. You know why that is uh, is okay? That's right, because we've got Bill Rhodes. He is the president and the chief executive of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors. And Bill, you know, just in giving you that list, that's like a free for all. Um, where where do you start? Let's start with China and and uh, Korea, because you know that that area of the world very well. It's great to be with you guys uh, here again, and uh, I think uh, as far as China goes, the most recent news, uh, of course, is that their first quarter came at a 6.9%. People had expected- GDP. GDP. Uh, people had expected somewhere between 67 and 68 The problem is it's driven by tremendous increases in debt. Their debt burden- uh, as we speak, is somewhere between 250 and 280% of GDP. Uh, the difference with those numbers is basically, if you count the interbank uh, exposures of the banks, it's 280. If you don't, it's 250. But that's like double it was a few years ago. And it continues to grow because the government is pushing as much uh, you know, liquidity into the market and, and allowing credit to grow significantly with the state-owned banking system because they want to make sure the economy is red hot when they have the 19th party congress's fall because this only happens every five years and they want to make sure that president xi jinping gets all his favorites on the standing uh, committee of the politburo and uh, this is all that counts at this point is to get that done uh, which will ensure that he's got at least another five years, and who knows, he may decide, the first one since Deng Xiaoping, to extend it beyond that. Yeah. Uh, and so that's all that counts. But the problem here is shadow banking continues to be basically unregulated. It's growing very rapidly. That's helping fund this cr- tremendous credit boom. Uh, they haven't done much to close the zombie companies in steel, coal, shipbuilding, and other areas, which they need to do, because eventually this is going to catch up to them probably next year. So the real question is, what happens after the party congresses fall? Will they start squeezing the economy? Yeah, you know, uh, Bill, I want to pick up on what you're saying, that probably next year they're going to have to start grappling with this. You were an international banker at Citigroup for five decades, and you dealt with a lot of workouts. Don't with... remind me. <laughs> I mean, well, it's, it's, it's important to have that kind of background because you helped uh, negotiate workouts in a host of different countries from Argentina, Brazil, Jamaica, Mexico, uh, you know, South Korea, you name it. What are you looking for? You just got back from China. What are you looking for to understand exactly where we are with respect to when China's credit bubble will come crashing down? 
Well, I think they're going to have to uh, start squeezing starting the end of this year. And they have a first-rate central bank, the People's Bank of China, uh, and some of the best economists in Asia are there. The head of it, uh, Zhou Xiaoxuan, has been kept over three years, which is a very smart move of Xi Jinping. He should have retired three years ago because uh, he is trying to keep this thing moving. Uh, and uh, also, uh, when we talk about China and the People's Bank of China, we have to talk about the renminbi because, as you know, our president— The Chinese Trump, currency. Exactly. Our president uh, had, had talked again and again about manipulation by the Chinese of their currency, and the first thing he was going to do was take action, declare them a, a manipulator. And the truth is that the Chinese, through the People's Bank of China, has spent a trillion dollars over the last year to maintain— the stability right. of the renminbi. So they're not pushing it down. They're actually keeping it stable or pushing it up. Well, I, I just I, I want to just press you on the credit issue before we, we go on, because it's this is the big question that a lot of people have, which is if China's credit system blows up, that will disrupt the entire financial system of the world. Are we close to that point? Well, my own feeling is that the Chinese will be pragmatic enough that when they get through this 19th Party Congress, they'll start basically uh, squeezing uh, the banking system, start controlling the shadow banking system, uh, working more to, uh, to, to basically control the uh, bubble in real estate, uh, municipalities, uh, and start moving more rapidly and closing down some of these zombie companies. So I think you're going to see a major surge starting at the end of this year through next year in this area because the Chinese know they have a problem uh, and uh, I think they will work at it. The question is, do they start early enough and what will be the impact if their growth rate goes from near 7% where it is today and drops down to 5%? Uh, you know, the effect on the world is the world's second largest economy, the largest importer of commodities in the world. So uh, they have the largest banking system in the in the world now. They've passed Europe. So you've got to take a look at all of these and watch very carefully, once you have that party congress, what they do with the economy. Can you do Brexit and the new uh, the snap election that's just been called? Can you do that in 15 seconds? Uh, I'm not surprised that uh, Prime Minister May has done it because she needs the strongest hand she can get in this negotiation because this negotiation is going to be tough. And, uh, you know, she was counting on some good feelings from Chancellor Merkel and others. But remember, Chancellor Merkel has to go into an election. God only knows what's going to happen in France because everyone thought two weeks ago or three weeks ago there was going to be a runoff in the second round between Macron and uh, Le Pen. Right. But now you have the left surging, and it's really not clear what's going to happen in the first round. So I think that uh, all bets are off with regards to the French election. Right. I think with Merkel, she will win, uh, but right. it may be a tougher election than people think. Exactly. Well, I will keep we'll keep uh, getting in touch with you because you have a lot of fantastic insights. Uh, Bill Rhodes is the author of Banker to the World, and he has been uh, for decades as a former banker at Citigroup. Bill Rhodes is the president and chief executive officer of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors.
grandfather used to say to me, uh, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. And uh, somebody who might ascribe uh, to that theory of the world is Michael Shaulov. He's head of products, uh, particularly with mobile security focus for Checkpoint's software technologies. He's former CEO and co-founder of Lacoon Mobile Security, which was acquired by Checkpoint Software. Uh, the company is based in San Carlos, California, as well as Tel Aviv. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with talking about what companies that you work with are doing to make sure that their uh, mobile devices uh, and all of those used by the employees are secure. And are companies doing enough? Good morning, Lisa. Um, so indeed, you know, we've seen uh, quite an uh, impressive adoption of mobile devices in the, in the corporate environment. I think uh, all of us are using those uh, smartphones, Android, iOS, um, as our primary sort of computing uh, platform for, for doing mobile. And most of the companies today, basically, they, they actually invested heavily in uh, managing those devices, but uh, very few of them have adopted solutions to, to secure the, the device itself from, from hackers. Well, tell us a little bit about some of the things that could happen if you don't spend time and money securing your network. Right. So, you know, cyber criminals uh, clearly uh, and they recognize the trend and they, they see the mobile devices uh, probably the, the weakest link in, in all of the IT infrastructure, mainly because um, IT professionals or security professionals, they don't have good visibility into what's going on on those devices. And uh, you can add to that the fact that uh, most of those devices are actually, they have dual use, right? They, they're used by the, the owners both for corporate uh, communication, but also for personal use. So, you know, once cyber criminals hack into that device, they can actually do almost everything, uh, starting from um, um, like eavesdropping on all of your uh, email communication, passwords that you would type, um, uh, you know, get, get access to your calendar, contact lists. And probably some of the scarier things is the fact that they can use the, Microsoft, the, the microphone and the, and the camera uh, to, to eavesdrop on you, even, you know, when, when the phone is in your pocket, pocket okay. when the screen is closed. Wait, wait, wait. Back up, back up. Okay. So there, we've heard a lot about these sort of worst case scenarios, you know, the dolls that are spying on your children and telling them what to do with microphones and stuff like that. She I never mean, believes me. That's well, all no, I can no, no, say. No, no, no. I believe, I believe. But I'm trying to figure out how common is this? I mean, is this just, you know, a one in a you know billion chance that somebody's going to do this? Or are there growing teams of people actively trying to hack in, activate the microphone and steal everything that you have in your bank? So I think that the, the microphone scenario is actually a very targeted scenario, uh, but uh, truth to be told, uh, first of all, in a survey that uh, we've conducted a few few weeks ago, uh, together with dimensional data, uh, they, they've, dimensional research, I'm sorry, they've actually, the, the companies actually recognize, about 20% of the companies recognize that they already had a breach from a mobile device. And 25 uh, said that uh, they, they actually have no clue, right, that they don't have visibility. From our own research, basically from customers that are using our, uh, our mobile threat prevention product, and we have more than 800 customers those days that are using the product, every, uh, every company that uh, they have more than 500 employees, they had a mobile breach. So that's, that's already quite common. Is that, is that okay? We're just syncing in with that. Any company 
that has more than 500 well, people. No, it's not okay at all. Well, I'm, that, that the truth is out, right? Okay, so we got, so this is, now you're trying to combat this, so you're trying to offer up uh, some solutions, right, for, for companies to prevent this from becoming a total mess. Yeah, that's accurate. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, so give us some idea, like how much would something like that cost? I mean, is, is, that, is that expensive? Is that uh, uh, on a per-phone basis? How does that work? So, so actually, it's not that expensive. Um, you know, for, you know, from a, if we're talking about list price, it, it basic, it's basically $4 uh, per month per, per device. And now, you know, tech, you know, an average uh, company with, uh, with, let's say, like, you know, 5,000 or 3,000 employees, it's not that expensive. And also, of course, you know, those uh, things, uh, those, those type of software, they have discounts, you know, based on volumes. Yeah. Michael, how, do you have a sense of where a lot of these hackers come from? Um, you know, it's uh, it's usually sort of like you know the 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 usual suspects. So a lot of those uh, groups uh, are emerging from China. Uh, you know, for example, last uh, last December, last uh, last November, we've uncovered a group uh, which breached about uh, 1.3 million devices. They were Chinese. Uh, some of those groups are actually emerging from from Russia, so we've seen traces that the same guys that hacked uh, DNC they they also have capabilities in the in the mobile in the smartphone space. No, it's it's pretty much uh, equivalent to what we're seeing you know everywhere else in in the cyberspace. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Michael Shalov is the head of products uh, mobile security for Checkpoint Software, and uh, I guess that. You know, offers a little bit of a window into what you should at least be aware could happen to your phone. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Just that's all I'm going to say. Leave well, it there. Okay. Well, the uh, rental car companies, Hertz Global Holdings and Avis Budget Group, they have bonds which trade, and boy, they are not trading like uh, hotcakes. They are uh, sort of like lemons, at least according to Molly Smith, our Bloomberg corporate finance reporter who joins us now. And you can follow Molly on Twitter at Molly Smith News. Molly Smith, tell us the tale of Hertz Global and Avis budget. And I, I just want to note that you uh, are in the enviable position of actually being charged more if you were ever to rent a car from either of these organizations because they have that 25-year-old and uh, below penalty. That's true. I I am charged with that penalty being- $200, a, yes. I think, or something like that, a, a, a security deposit. Yep. A yeah. nice $200 charge um, for us under the age of 25. All right. Um, but that's true. Yeah, the bonds are really getting hit lately. Um, you could see it starting from a bit earlier this month, and it's really coming in line with the decline in used car prices, which is really the assets essentially that back these bonds and loans that are issued by these companies. So when those prices are coming down on the cars, you know, so are these um, securitizations from the companies. And you're seeing that now reflected in the bond prices. Previously was an equity issue. You know, you saw a bit more of the stock sell off earlier, but the creditors now are starting to get wary as well. 
Well, and just to be clear, this isn't just the investors in the securitized bonds, but also in uh, the straight corporate debt that Hertz and Avis have issued, which is interesting because these companies have levered up on several fronts, right? They've uh, sold off the uh, residuals the, or the income that they get from rentals to go to the securitized uh, bondholders, as well as sold corporate debt mm-hmm. to raise money for their operations. Have these companies addressed the ongoing and growing concern that the resale market for autos is falling out of bed and is going to profoundly challenge their whole business model. Well, I think that's exactly the challenge that they're facing now and possibly having to reevaluate their residual value assumptions and what they had previously made. Uh, Both Hertz and Avis were forecasting no more than a 2 to 3% decline in used car prices. You're now already seeing um, GMs forecasting those prices to fall 7% this year. Ally Financial, um, which is an auto financing lender, um, their prices already fell 7% in the first quarter. So um, the the decline is definitely steeper and faster than these companies had anticipated. Now, just looking, $4.8 billion worth of debt. Let's just take Hertz Global for uh, for a moment. But this incurs, uh, includes, I beg your pardon, um, revolving uh, revolvers that are available, term loans that, out, uh, that are outstanding, as well as uh, a bond principle. So, well, although uh, you should note that it's up, right? I mean, it was that, that uh, if you look at just, for example, Hertz, their short and long-term debt has increased from $11.3 billion in 2011 to $13.5 billion. So they've been actually increasing their debt. So it actually matters quite a bit. Anyway, carry on. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, 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 anyway, I was looking at $4.8 billion, right? Yes. Uh, uh, on the Bloomberg. And uh, is that considered a lot for, for uh, these kinds of companies? I mean, these are assets, and you may, f- you may, you may find that people are going to buy them, and uh, it may be good paper. You don't know. Right. Well, I mean, I think really what's more concerning to the um, creditors right now and the analysts that look at it, it's not so much the absolute amount of debt, but when you're looking at it on a net leverage ratio basis. So right. Hertz is really trying to keep that within a two and a half to three and a half times range. And they're, as of year end, it was at 5.6 times their um, net debt to adjusted earnings. So really, like then they've acknowledged it, you know, their CFO on conference calls, they know that they are really at elevated leverage levels and something that they are working to reduce. But uh, so far, that clearly has not right. happened. And, well, and investors, yeah. <laughs> and as you said, I mean, stockholders, investors in the company, owners of the investor have already kind of voted with their money, and the stock is down 27% so far this year. All right, and Avis also down um, more than 20% this year as well. You have to wonder why Hertz and Avis still buy new cars, hold them for a year during their highest depreciation period of time, and then try to resell them. Is there any talk about changing that model? Well, the idea right now, um, as they're starting to buy more new cars versus used in the fleet, is really to take advantage of the heavy discounting going on at the new car level. And while, I mean, they are trying to drive their acquisition costs down in other ways by some of them are switching more to what's called the risk versus a program vehicle, a risk vehicle, in which case the companies like Hertz and Avis own the vehicle outright. They're making the assumptions about the residual um, price when you know when it comes time to sell the car versus a program car, the companies get on a buyback agreement from the manufacturers, so they don't have to assume any of that price risk. So the program cars, in that sense, do cost a bit more. Hence, why the rental car companies are somewhat shifting shifting a little bit more toward the risk vehicles to drive down the acquisition costs a little bit more. 
Is that is is that going to affect uh, you know how the businesses actually run the kind of car you get when you you know you show up at a, at a rental car company? Well, at least for Hertz right now, the fleet is like a bit lopsided, and we talked about this a little bit in the story that you know they um, were trying to you know reduce the size and age of their fleet previously by buying smaller, cheaper cars, but they didn't turn out to be so popular. Americans tend to prefer bigger cars, especially when they're renting, when they're on the road. You know, they have more things to carry. So I think right now that's really what they're in the middle of doing, of correcting their fleet. And that's something that analysts are looking for coming up. Thank you so much. This is a really important story. It sort of highlights some of the growing distress that we've been hearing about and seeing in the auto sector. Molly Smith, we really appreciate you joining us. Molly Smith is a corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg talking about Avis and Hertz and their bonds tumbling to new lows as we see resale values of vehicles decline. Medical bills have been straining employers for a long time. Uh, But the question really is, how much does Obamacare change that? How much does the failure of the GOP's proposal uh, to repeal and replace Obamacare affect all of this? I want to bring in Joe Jackson, who's chairman and chief executive officer of WageWorks, which is based in San Mateo, California. If if anyone has ever uh, deducted or or put aside money for medical expenses, they've dealt with WageWorks and filling out those forms. I know that I have, Joe. Thank you so much for joining us right now. Uh, How much are you keeping track of what happens on the national health care level? How much does that affect your revenues and your business? Well, uh, thank you for having me, uh, Lisa. I I think we spend quite a bit of time uh, kind of tracking and um, uh, keeping close to the the, the puts and takes that were put into uh, the recent health care bill. Uh, we continue to have folks in Washington uh, monitor the meetings that are taking place. Um, but I think overall, what we tell uh, folks at WageWorks is that the um, whether or not the bill were to pass, um, our products that we provide to working families across the countries uh, are thriving today and will continue to thrive no matter whether there's uh, a new health care bill, which I believe that there will be at some point in time, or um, if, uh, if there's not. Uh, the key thing is that out-of-pocket health care expenses continue to go up each year. And working families across the country, the only defense mechanism that they have um, to offset those increases in out-of-pocket expenses is to use a health savings account, uh, put pre-tax dollars into a flexible spending account um, that allows them to you know, pay for those expenses using pre-tax dollars, which is uh, really a benefit for working families. Joe Jackson, then how come the government seems to make it so difficult and so complicated for everybody to share the same kinds of benefits that you're describing? Because you've got the flexible spending accounts, the FSAs. Then you have the health savings accounts, the HSAs. Oh, and yes, the health reimbursement arrangements, the HRAs. And then you've got transit programs. Why can't they just simplify this and expand these programs? You say they work. Why just not expand something that is already doing pretty well? 
Well, I think there is expansion uh, across the board. I think in uh, health savings accounts, uh, a lot of what was proposed in the recent health care bill uh, would go a long way to expand the amount of dollars that can be contributed to a health savings account. Uh, there were some other Nice what if they thing. pulled off the caps, for example? I mean, they keep talking about tearing up the script and, you know, making the government. What would you like if you could write your own bill, let's say, what would it contain? Well, I think from from our industry standpoint, uh, I think you make a good point. Uh, I think working Americans should be allowed to contribute whatever the amount that suits their family would be required to cover their out-of-pocket expenses. So eliminating the caps, um, making the product more efficient, products more efficient to be utilized. Uh, you also have a uh, sections of the U.S. in, in different uh, populations. Some are spenders. Uh, we're a flexible spending account where the dollars are available to be spent in total on January 1 at the beginning of each plan year. They find that a lot more attractive to cover their requirements. Um, savings accounts are becoming more and more popular from a health savings standpoint. Right. If you think about um, uh, individuals that um, are, are retiring, the, the amount of money that is going to, for example, a 65-year-old couple today that retire, uh, their health care costs are going to average uh, through their lifetime about $377,000. That's expected to be about $570,000 in the near future. So from our perspective, uh, we believe, and, and I say this many times to folks that we speak with, that I think in three to five years, people are going to have a 401k account for retirement, and they're going to have a health care account, whether it's a savings or a spending account for retirement. And I think the, the recent health care bill has a lot of uh, pluses uh, that are going to impact both flexible savings accounts and health savings accounts. And I think that, uh, you know, more of that, as you described, is whether it's uh, uh, expanding the cap, expanding the use uh, of and eligibility for these accounts. Right. I think all of that is going to play well for our industry and our business going forward. So talking about your business, Joe, WageWorks manages some of these uh, flexible spending accounts, health savings accounts for companies. How do you make money? Is it the companies pay you to manage uh, this, this arrangement or are there other sources of revenue for you? Well, no. Primarily, it's the employers. Uh, we have a, a little over 100,000 employers that we work with today. Uh, primarily, they would pay us a per-participant, per-month fee uh, for the plan year. Uh, our big time of uh, re-enrollment season, which is during open enrollment, uh, we spend a lot of time and effort uh, educating uh, providing awareness programs to people so they're aware that, of the value that these products provide them. I mean, if you're an employee today and you don't take advantage of a health savings account or a flexible spending account, in essence, you're really leaving money on the table. Are more people using these? Um, more and more every year. Uh, HSAs are our fastest growing product. Uh, our HSA business grew last year a little over 50%. Uh, flexible spending accounts continue to grow, especially uh, in 2013 was really a catalyst when uh, the government basically uh, eliminated the antiquated use it or lose it policy for flexible spending accounts. And now you're able to carry over up to $500 in your account each year. So that's really spurred the growth of flexible spending accounts. But uh, with but the, see, Joe, right there. I mean, right there, right. I mean, why it, five? I mean, yeah, come Pim, on. Pim and Let's I be. At each other. What's five hundred? I mean, I understand. You know, the you like the country kids. and the geography of the world, and and you know, we're coast to coast and worldwide. We know that there are these vast differences. But I mean, come on. 
and, and, and I'm not saying that it's your role, so you know, please don't you know take it that way. But mm-hmm. it, it's like, come on, five hundred bucks. I mean, it, you know, if you're going to end up with some kind of serious medical issue, what is it, a thousand a day in a hospital? And uh, none of this really goes to. I mean, why not? Uh, would you support a single payer system, for example? Um, no, I don't think that that's uh, really the. Uh you know, again, I wouldn't speak towards whether a single payer or the process we have in place works. I would tell you, I'm shoulder to shoulder with you in your uh, comments with regard to the $500. If you have a chronic condition today, the average out-of-pocket expenses that you're going to incur each year is about $4,000. So, you know, the $500 carryover doesn't seem like a lot, but we worked for about 18 months with Treasury and the IRS uh, to help get that uh, provision passed. I just, I guess I was just trying to get from you the understanding of what is the other side, whoever the other side is, what are they thinking when you have these conversations with them? Well, I think it always involves a tax code, which is uh, uh, obviously very complicated and very time-consuming in trying to make changes done. I would tell you we continue. In fact, I have my chief compliance officer in Washington today, uh, who's having um, uh, you know daily meetings? Oh wow! I wouldn't. Uh, I do, I gotta say I do not envy him at all. Uh, but uh, I'm so glad you were able to spend time with us. Joe Jackson is the chairman and the chief executive of WageWorks, uh, giving us some uh, detailed information and some updates on some aspects of the uh, bill to replace uh, Obamacare. Might actually help uh, consumers maybe expand some of those health savings accounts. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.